Hi, and good evening uh, from Israel. Tonight we have another fascinating webinar uh, from the Middle East Forum. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking with Anne Herzberg on the issue of how the world fuels Palestinian irredentism. A little bit about uh, Anne before we start, uh, but just uh, please keep in mind that uh, Anne will speak for about 15 minutes at the beginning, and then we will have Q&A. So if you have any question, uh, please feel free to write it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, Anne Hertzberg is the legal advisor of NGO Monitor and the United Nations representative for the Institute for NGO Research. She has argued before the International Criminal Court on the situation in Palestine, authored NGO Lawfare and publishes in Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post and the Wall Street Journal. She received her BA from Oberlin College and her JD from Columbia University School of Law. Uh, and with that, Anne, uh, please take it away. Thanks so much, Ashley, and thank you so much to the MEF and Daniel Pipes for having me today. Um, so I'm gonna be speaking about Mahmoud Abbas and the PA's efforts to use international institutions and legal frameworks as a means to promote their ongoing campaign of irredentism. And I believe that the Palestinian refusal to accept Jewish presence and sovereignty in the region is the core cause of the conflict. And efforts to resolve the conflict for the most part continue to pay scant attention to this root cause. And without tackling it, I believe that peace in the region will remain elusive. Uh, so it's a very important topic. Um, but also this campaign has consequences beyond the re Israel and beyond the region. Uh, notably, uh, the campaign of irredentism foments terrorism and armed conflict globally. The, it's, uh, responsible for the squandering of billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer fun funding in, in European money, the degradation of international institutions, and the subversion of U.S. and Western values, often at our own hands. And one of the primary ways in which the Palestinians promote irredentism is via the exploitation of international institutions such as the U.N. And so I'm going to detail how this exploitation has been carried out and what Israel, the US, and other countries can do to combat it. Uh, before starting, I just also wanna plug uh, my latest research project that addresses these issues within the context of the apartheid charge against Israel. And in the past year, I've been working with a co-author, UK barrister Joshua Kern, and we have issued two in-depth reports on the issue as well as several academic papers and submissions and we, we are in, currently in the process of compiling this work into a book that we hope to publish in the coming year. Uh, and some of this material is already posted on the NGO Monitor website. And so I invite all of you to take a look at that. So last week, the Palestinian media reported that the PA was seeking a bid to obtain UN member state status. And just as a refresher, UN member state status is obtained via recommendation to the General Assembly from the Security Council. And despite optimistic reports in describing the bid by the Palestinian press, it is unlikely the bid will be successful. Um, but this is really the second attempt in about 10 years for the PA to try to join the UN as a full member. So, but why, why does the Palestinian leadership continue to press for this move knowing it is unlikely to get past, at the very least, a US veto. And so to answer this question, I want us to go back to 2011. In 2011, Mahmoud Abbas authored an op-ed in the New York Times, promoting the bid at that time for UN member state status, 
which would allow the PLO to exploit multilateral institutions and internationalize the drill. As part of its ongoing irredentist campaign, the op-ed to you the main, the operative line in the op-ed, because it'll be important for the discussion going forward. And it read, quote, Palestine's admission to the United Nations would pave the way for the internationalization of the conflict as a legal matter, not only a political one. It would also pave the way for us to pursue claims against Israel at the United Nations, human rights treaty bodies, and the International Court of Justice. So in other words, the PA was not using UN member state status to resolve the conflict, to achieve a peaceful result where both sides come out as winners, but to use this member state status to further the conflict, to continue the irredentism, and to promote a zero-sum strategy. And since, although the 2011 bid failed, um, the strategy has been somewhat successful for the Palestinians, at least in terms of achieving some short-term and zero-sum gains. Um, but again, ultimately, these moves have simply perpetuated the conflict and really primarily to the Palestinians' detriment. Um, I also want to point out that, of course, the strategy did not begin in 2011. Uh, really, it's been operative since the beginning of the conflict. There are many examples going back to the mandate period, and I recommend two books that came out by Stephen Zipperstein on uh, this history, where he has many examples of how the Palestinians were using legal efforts to um, delegitimize and try to block the creation of a Jewish state at that time. Now, throughout the conflict, many of these efforts have been successful. Uh, they've been responsible for shaping the narrative of the conflict, primarily in Europe and at the international level, and also emboldening and maintaining the irredentist camp. And it must be said that the UN has really played a primary role in colluding with the PLO in this effort. And I just want to highlight a couple examples, um, and there are many more. I'm happy to talk about them in the Q&A. In October 1974, for instance, the GA recognized the PLO um, and its ability to participate at the GA on debates involving the question of Palestine. And this led to, in November 1974, of Arafat making his outrageous speech from the GA podium where he got a standing ovation. And then the subsequent granting of observer status to the PLO, PLO at the UN. Now I wanna fast forward to 2009 in 2009, the PLO attempts to join the International Criminal Court. And again, to refresh our memories, the Criminal Court was founded in 1998 via the Rome Statute and became operational in 2002. And in the Rome Statute, um, the key provision was that only states could join the court. Now, Israel and the US were interested in joining the court. They, they signed the Rome Statute. They neither ratified it, however, in Israel's case, it was because uh, terrorism was not on the agenda for the Rome Statute. And also the Arab states has successfully um, uh, rewritten the, the um, definition of war crimes such that it would include Israeli settlement activity. So Israel did not officially ratify the court. And again, the US did not do so because they were concerned that the court would be used for political campaigns, which indeed it has, and in order to, and would end up hampering, would put US uh, military uh, servicemen at risk, servicemen and women at risk, 
and also be used to hamper US military efforts. So the US also did not join the courts. But it's important to note that at the time, actors, NGOs were heavily lobbying for the US to join the court and Israel. Uh, Ken Roth of HRW was probably the most notable. He, you know, he was lobbying um, uh, the US government, for instance, saying there's no way a state, uh, a non-state entity could join the court and there was no need to worry that the Palestinians would join. And, and, and so the US should certainly join and it wasn't going to become this political body. Um, and of course these were you know, false promises as we shall soon see. Um, so in 2009, the Palestinians decide to try to join the court. They present uh, their accession to the Rome statute to the prosecutor at the time, Luis Moreno Ocampo. And rather than dismissing the Palestinian effort out of hand, he decides to launch a public relations campaign to debate the issue of whether Palestinians could join the court. And this involved op-eds, it involved uh, roundtables in The Hague at the court. I actually participated in one of these roundtables. Uh, the way uh, proponents of, of, of Israel and against the Palestinian position were treated is quite interesting. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, and he had a forum on UCLA Law School on their website uh, to debate this issue. So this dragged out for several years. And while this, this uh, application was pending, in 2011, shortly after the Mahmoud Abbas op-ed in the New York Times, the Palestinians decided to go for a bid uh, for full UN membership at the Security Council. Now, um, it was becoming clear this was not going to be a successful effort. So the Palestinians decide instead to circumvent the Security Council and they go to UNESCO. And due to the rules of UNESCO, they are able to join UNESCO as a member state. And uh, this, this effort actually highlights a lot of the problems that we've seen all along with this irredentist campaign and the enabling of it by uh, other countries, Western countries, particularly in Europe. So in the UNESCO bid, for instance, the EU, uh, some EU member states were uh, vociferously against the PA move. Um, but France was not, and it basically prevented the EU from coming to a consensus position. Now, so although many EU countries um, voted against the UNESCO bid or abstained from the vote, uh, because it's very hard for a, um, it's very hard to overcome these votes in UN um, institute and in UN bodies because of the way the voting works. It's dominated by the non-aligned movement, by the Arab League, and by the um, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So it's very hard for Western countries to overcome these votes. However, if you have all of the European countries voting no, it, alongside the US and a couple other countries, it sends a very strong moral message. And often it can help peel off some African, Asian, and Latin American countries um, from that move. And, also, it prevents um, the Europeans, even though they often um, oppose or weakly oppose these types of efforts, they just let it go after the fact. So they, they um, once something like this happens, they don't fight it, they don't have any consequences for it, they continue to fund the institution. In contrast, the US cut off the UNESCO budget, uh, which was highly significant to the institution, and then the Trump administration dropped out of UNESCO. So, um, and the US right now is currently, I believe, still determining whether or not it is going to rejoin UNESCO. I'm not sure if that decision's been made yet. 
Um, so this is a pattern that we see over and over again with these types of moves. Now in 2012, the prosecutor in the spring finally decides to issue an opinion on whether the Palestinians can join the ICC and he says no. But what he did was provide a blueprint of how they could join the ICC. So he basically says that if the UN considers Palestine to be a, to be a state, they could then join the ICC. So they have this failed bid to become a member state of the UN, but they do have the UNESCO decision. Um, and they then the Palestinians decide to go to the General Assembly. And they basically in December get a resolution passed declaring Palestine to be a non-member observer state. And again, we see the same dynamics playing out. We have several European countries um, voting in favor, even though when they explain their votes, they say, well, we don't think Palestine is a state, but we wanna be supportive of the peace process. So we're gonna vote for this resolution. Some countries voted for it saying that the Palestinians had promised they would not use this resolution to go to the ICC which of course those promises were worth nothing because the Palestinians did go join the ICC. Um, so we have a lot of this happening, like I said, again and again, but again, nothing happened to really oppose what the PA did. Um, so they get this status and it paves the way for the PLO to join other international bodies. Now in my research on the apartheid issue, I came across proceedings from a 2013 conference that took place at Birzeit University in Ramallah. And at this conference were PLO officials, UN officials, European officials, many NGOs, many terror-linked individuals, and they were coming up with a new legal strategy for the conflict. And basically the things they decided at this conference were A, to, to move from to an apartheid um, paradigm as opposed to an occupation paradigm. And we're beginning to see that in the past couple of years. They decided the Palestinians should go to the ICC they wanted the Palestinians to go to the ICJ to get another advisory opinion about apartheid and colonialism to follow on the wall decision of 2004. They talked about going to the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the CERD, and they also talked about the ICC. So after this conference, we again see the strategy being executed. And again, they're very clear about the, what they were going to do. Now, I don't know, um, let's say in the Israeli government or the US government who was aware of these proceedings, but they were public. And, um, you know, unfortunately there's a pattern that, that I've come across where there's often a sense of, uh, although it's gotten a little bit better, but a sense of denial or paralysis where um, governmental actors aren't quite sure how to respond to these events or they're hoping that they aren't going to actually happen and so they fail to take moves to try to block them at the time. And then it, they could become a fait accompli and then there's nothing really, there's not a lot that can be done to stop it uh, once it's in motion. And again, we see this from this 2013 conference because what happens January, 2015, uh, the Palestinians join the Rome statute. They are not opposed. Um, the prosecutor at the time, Fatou Bensouda decides to, um, launch a preliminary investigation. In December 2019, she applies to the pretrial chamber of the court to confirm her jurisdiction to open a full investigation. And she makes three propositions in her application, number and all relying on UN resolutions. So number one, she says resolution 6719 call, 
called Pal um, admitted Palestine as a non-member observer state to the UN, and therefore not looking at what the term state means from a substantive perspective in the Rome Statute, merely just looked at the word state and claimed that was enough for them to join the court. She used the resolutions to determine the territory of such Palestinian state, which she claimed was East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank. And also she used those resolutions uh, to say that Palestinians had a right to self-determination and as a consolation prize for not having a state, they should be allowed to be able to become part of the court and get this investigation against Israel. So she makes this application. Um, I actually was uh, one of the amic amicus, I filed an amicus brief. I joined on an amicus brief in the case. Um, in 2021, February, the court confirmed her ability to open a full investigation, but it was a highly controversial opinion. It was a two to one decision. The majority uh, basically did very little legal analysis, less than 20 pages, didn't really get into the legal issues, just looked at these pro forma arguments. The resolution calls them a state, therefore they're a state. Uh, Judge Kovacs had a very in-depth dissent and I, I urge everyone to take a look at that dissent because he speaks about all the selective ways in which these UN resolutions were relied upon by the prosecutor and the majority. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Ben Suda decides to open in March a full investigation, also knowing that a new prosecutor was going to be appointed in a few months. So she basically is tying the hands of the new prosecutor that they have to go forward with this. So in, um, in um, June of that year, the new prosecutor, Kareem Khan from the UK is appointed prosecutor. Now in the past, currently where things stand, in his last report to the General Assembly, which was in um, December of this past year, he said that right now um, they're simply evaluating the case. It's not a priority for this year. Um, but lest anyone thinks that nothing is happening with the ICC, and I've unfortunately heard that attitude from government officials from several countries and from Jewish organizations, pro-Israel organizations, um, saying, well, this indicates he's not really going for, for Israel. I completely disagree. Um, I think he's completely working on going against Israel. He's just sort of um, biding his time because as I'm going to talk about, the Human Rights Council has impaneled a commission of inquiry and they're essentially doing the work for him at the moment. So right now he's focused on Ukraine. In a year or two, I would not doubt if he turns his attention to uh, Israel. So I would not, um, I would not take for granted that uh, things are quiet right now. What else do the Palestinians, and I just wanna also add that this is something that has teeth as opposed to a lot of other things that happen at the UN, the Israeli expression, um shmoom, who cares what the UN does, but the ICC does have teeth because they have the ability to issue arrest warrants. And if they're able to get custody over uh, suspects, they can conduct trials and put people in jail. And the other concern is that these types of cases could be used to support universal jurisdiction, domestic cases in countries, as well as perhaps bolstering sanctions campaigns. So it is something that um, does have a risk. It limits Israeli officials um, and people who've been involved in the army, their ability to travel to Europe, for instance. Um, so it is, it is significant. Uh, what else have the Palestinians been doing? In 2018, for the first time, anytime a country has done this, the Palestinians file an interstate complaint at the CERD against Israel for racial discrimination and apartheid. And even though the UN's Office of Legal Affairs, Legal Council, um, 
um, came out against the move and said there was no jurisdiction to uh, hear this complaint, the CERD, um, which is not accountable really to anybody, uh, decides they were going to go ahead and in the past few months have started their proceedings. It's the first time this proceeding's ever been used. So they're making it up as they go along. And there's no doubt that like just about every other UN mechanism, they will be relying almost entirely on Palestinian advocates, BDS advocates, terrorite NGOs. They will do very little to consult anyone with a pro-Israel position, a pro-Western position. Um, and they will likely issue a report in the coming months calling Israel apartheid. I, that's highly likely. And that report will be used by the Commission of Inquiry at the Human Rights Council, will also be used again by BDS initiatives like we've been seeing from churches this summer in the United States or on college campuses. So it'll be used for that. It might be used for other sanctions type mechanisms uh, that we see. And the other thing is, and like I've mentioned in March and uh, May, 2021, the Human Rights Council convened a commission of inquiry that has begun its work. They presented their first, um, their first reports to the council in June. I was the only Israeli speaking at that debate in June. Um, and there have been a lot of controversies as you may be aware. Um, in July, one of the commissioners made extremely anti-Semitic comments to the Mondo Weiss radical podcast. Um, and in, in addition to the anti-Semitic comments, which um, Commissioner Navi Pillay essentially was trying to gaslight uh, the international community claiming that they were taken out of context, even though the commissioner who made them, Maloon Kothari, admitted he had made the comments. Um, and Chris Sudoti, the other commissioner had made very offensive comments in his remarks to the council saying that people throw around accusations of anti-Semitism like rice at a wedding. Um, there's no, and they, and in the past, before they had even been chosen, had made highly prejudicial comments about Israel. Um, they also are clearly, and by comments they've made in the past two months, are clearly also looking to find um, uh, Israel as apartheid. Uh, it's an unprecedented commission. It never is in, in perpetuity at the moment. Largest budget, largest staff, uh, the most extensive mandate by their own admission ever at the Human Rights Council. Um, and also the key feature of this commission is that it is supposed to directly collect evidence for the ICC and other judicial mechanisms. So again, everything is coalescing together. So what, what can Israel and other countries do? So again, the government, I believe, has, has done a better job at trying to block these moves. But I think, again, they, do, um, they are not uh, taking enough proactive steps ahead of time. I'll just give one example. When the COI was convened in May, um, it's very hard, like I said, to overcome these resolutions because of the voting patterns. So one thing that they, so really the main uh, weapon is the funding of the COI, and there should have been a concerted campaign from day one to block the funding. And that really did not happen until very late in the UN budgeting process when it was almost impossible to stop. Um, and in the past, this has been quite successful um, blocking the budgets. For instance, a few years ago, the Human Rights Council, the Office of the High Commissioner, uh, put out a blacklist of companies that they claimed were uh, operating in settlements and violating human rights, a defamatory BDS blacklist. Um, and that has 
been delayed for a couple of years because they don't have funding now to update it, although I believe they're starting to do so again. Um, they, um, and also I was, I was actually at the council right before COVID in November, 2019. And because of the US cuts to the office of the high commissioner, for instance, none of the escalators and many elevators were not working in the building. And they had signs all over the building saying, we don't have enough money to operate the escalators. Um, so again, it does have, it is quite successful to um, cut the money. So that, that really needs to be the number one goal. Um, Another thing that's been extremely influential is certainly the Abraham Accords. So Israel should be working to expand the accords, getting more and more countries to sign on. Um, because again, that takes away a lot of the support and funding for this type of campaign. And hopefully will encourage the Palestinians to stop this campaign of irredentism, to give it up and to actually negotiate a compromise to the, to the conflict. Things the US can do. Um, uphold and pass additional legislation such as that which was used in UNESCO to cut funding. Um, there are oftentimes they have the bills, but they're circumvented um, or they use um, technicalities to try to get around these bills. So Congress needs to strengthen these bills and make it much harder to, um, to uh, pass them um, and also put pressure on Europeans also to perhaps block funding and to vote no on these types of efforts. I'm just gonna stop here just so we have time for Q&A, but I'm happy to talk more about some of these strategies in the Q&A. So I will turn it over to Thank Ashley, you. thanks. Thank you so, so much, Anne, for a really detailed uh, description of what the Palestinians are doing, which leads uh, uh, to the first question from the president of the Middle East Forum, who is listening, uh, Daniel Pipes. Uh, his question is, are the facts you report a reason to allow the PA to collapse? I, I, I guess you've spoken about what Israel should do in the international community, what it should do with the US and some other states. What uh, steps should it be taking against uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority? Should it allow it to collapse is, is, is uh, uh, Dr. Pipes's question. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question. Um, I'm not sure that's the solution, but I definitely think Israel needs to be much tougher with the PA and enforcing, you know, measures in the Oslo Accords, you know, in terms of tax collection, visas, um, uh, other types of um, cooperation that they're doing. Um, you know, I mean, there is the concern about if the PA collapses, who comes in to fill the vacuum at this point. So I think there, you know, that that's why it's a complicated question that um, doesn't have an easy answer, unfortunately. But I do think the international community certainly can be much tougher also with the PA, um, you know, in terms of the funding, um, things like UNRWA, uh, funding, you know, providing funding to um, PA officials um, that allow them to take these moves, you know, and not tolerating what they're doing at these international institutions. Okay. Uh, is that just a, a little bit of a follow-up? I'm going to push you a little bit on that. Is there... Yeah. Are there any other steps that you think Israel could be taking against? Because at the end of the day, this, you know, the international community is very much held, willing or not, uh, in this sort of, uh, you know, anti-Israel prison. Uh, but at the end of the day, it begins with the Palestinian Authority. It begins with the Palestinian leadership. Are there steps Israel should be taking, uh, like the US has taken legally, if, if they apply for certain uh, organizations, then this will happen. Is there something 
Israel can be doing to fight back. I mean, rather than taking the, you know, obviously the war should be, or the conflict or whatever it is, uh, what lawfare uh, should be taken around the world. But at the end of the day, perhaps it should start more locally. Are there things that you believe that Israel should be taking directly against the Palestinian leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some punitive measures they could, you know, in terms of like, you know, there's Israel allow, you know, provide, gives a lot of services to PA officials, you know, cutting those types of things off. Um, you know, other types of punitive measures might, might, might be necessitated uh, if they continue along that path. Uh, you know, so, I, and I think also putting pressure on our allies, I think is another thing that Israel can be doing, like more with the, holding the Europeans to account, um, not allowing the Europeans to operate their missions for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. Why are they allowing that? You know, make them go to Ramallah, for instance. I don't understand why they allow them to do that in Jerusalem. Um, you know, so there are things sort of on, along those lines that they could probably do. Okay, we've got a number of questions. I'll try and narrow some of them down because some of them repeat themselves. Um, but as uh, you know, as someone who myself who's, who's worked in the Israeli government, there's always that debate about whether they should give a particular commission uh, or inquiry or whatever it is, uh, the legitimacy. And that's been the decision on many of the, going back to Goldstone, even, even further back, should Israel expend the time and resources to respond or should it continue what it's doing and just not give it legitimacy, knowing that it's unlikely that it will win? Yeah, I totally agree with the Israeli decision not to cooperate. I think it has to do with the um, forum. So for instance, Israel has cooperated, even though the results maybe weren't you know, totally favorable to Israel. But for instance, they did cooperate with um, two boards of inquiries looking at um, damage to UN institutions during a couple of the Gaza conflicts. So they did cooperate with that. They did um, cooperate with the Palmer Commission looking at the flotilla. Um, they did pay out money relating to the flotilla. Um, so depending on the forum, I think Israel should cooperate, but that the Human Rights Council is beyond help at this point. There's no point cooperating with that. The members were appointed to do a kangaroo court. Uh, the way they've been operating to date has shown they have no interest in upholding the requirements set out by the Human Rights Council of impartiality and objectivity. Um, and also these are rogue actors. You know, they're not accountable to anyone. They can do whatever they want. They're inventing law. Um, and Israel just shouldn't be a party to it. And I, I think their move is 100% correct on this. And also with international criminal courts, the court does what it wants. It's not beholden to anyone. I mean, ostensibly to the assembly of state parties, but it seems like the ASP is not willing to hold them accountable when they do things. They're making up the laws they go. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't see any reason why Israel should cooperate when it's not, when the deck, deck is completely stacked against it. Right. Um, this it's been suggested that uh, that you know the sort of lawfare, the internationalization, the conflict is a key component of the uh, ongoing conflict, if not leading it at the moment. Do you believe Israel is winning or losing? You you gave a couple of examples of where Israel's. I don't know if you say won, but certainly not lost as badly as other places. What do you think? Uh, what what do you think about that? Is Israel winning or losing? Can Israel win? Has Israel achieved any victories? And, and what do you see in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think Israel can win. Um, I think the Abraham Accords are an excellent victory. You know, I, I think that's been excellent. I think expanding them is excellent. 
uh, that should be the priority focus. Uh, dealing with Iran needs to be a priority focus. In terms of the UN, it's very difficult, but in, at, Israel has at times been able to win when they played hardball. I don't wanna get into too many details because it would take a while, but for instance, there was something that happened in 2013 at the council and essentially because Israel played hardball, they were able to that at that point get full membership into the Western Europe and others group, um, which had never happened before and which had been responsible for a lot of discrimination against Israel. But because they played hardball, they finally got full membership into that group, which has allowed them to join a lot of committees and have influence now at the UN in places they never did before. Um, and also a lot of the Western countries boycott agenda item seven debates. Um, and even at the COI debate in June, the president of the council did not preside over the debate. That was a big blow to the commission. They had the vice president presiding. It's a big blow not to have the president there at the first meeting of the COI. And also when you looked, when you were in the room, more than half the countries weren't there. So a lot of countries did boycott that session. Um, and I do think that was a victory. So I think if Israel acts decisively and early, I think it can achieve a uh, victory. Okay, and on that optimistic note, uh, I'd like to thank you very much, Anne, for your time, for giving us such a lucid and detailed and important uh, history and looking into the future about uh, you know, what, what Israel can do or should be doing against Palestinian irredentism in the international arena. So thank you very much, Anne. Um, thank you for all of those in attendance and those who ask questions. On Wednesday, I'll be giving my weekly uh, roundup of what's going on in Israel, uh, the Israel Insider, which is three o'clock Eastern Standard Time, 10 o'clock uh, Israel time, and wishing everybody a very good evening or good afternoon, or good, wherever you're uh, listening to us. Thank you very much. Thanks so much.